Today's sermon is a little unusual for me and for us as a church because this is the end of the prayer vigil, so I wanted to preach on the topic of prayer. And because we prayed through the whole book of Revelation, I wanted to preach from the whole book of Revelation. That's a lot, a lot of verses. So I am going to read two specific passages a little bit later and show you their importance in particular, but my sermon is based on one big observation from the whole book. So as we've worked through the book, the 24 hours, just reading a chapter every hour, I walked away with one big observation that I want to share with you. Now, of course, before I do that, that means I have to explain the whole book first, right, to put it in context. And I told you yesterday at the worship service that I'll give you a two-minute overview of Revelation. Um, I try to do that at home, and I timed myself. I was a little ambitious, too ambitious. I need at least three and a half to four minutes, okay? <laughs> but don't time me just in case I go a little over. I want to give you kind of a big picture of what Revelation is about. There's a lot of confusing parts to it, but hopefully this big overview will help you understand the book, and set it in context of what we're going to be talking about the rest of the sermon. The key to understanding Revelation, in my opinion, is to read it through the lens of the interaction between heaven and earth. Heaven is the realm of God's unchallenged rule, and earth is the world in rebellion against Him. So you have these two realms They're not two physical places. Don't think of it as two physical places. There are two spiritual realities that sometimes overlap, but in general are in conflict with one another. Heaven and earth are in conflict, and Revelation is the drama. It's helpful to think of the book of Revelation as a drama. It's the drama in which we see this conflict explored and finally resolved. Now, remember, when the Lord taught us to pray, the disciples asked Him to teach us to pray. Part of the prayer was, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Remember that? On earth in the rebellious world, as it is in heaven, in the unchallenged rule of God in heaven. So, Revelation is the drama of the kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth and conquering the kingdom of this world. So let me show you how it's worked out throughout the book. It begins, the book begins with John, this prophet, this apostle, this seer, John worshiping on the Lord's day. It's important that it's during worship on the Lord's day because that's when heaven and earth come together. John is worshiping and he means Jesus. Jesus is the mediator between heaven and earth because he came from heaven and he lived on earth And then he died between, suspended between heaven and earth for the sins of the world. He went into the depths of the earth, but the earth could not keep him because he rose from the dead, conquered death, and ransomed for himself all who trust him. Then Jesus went back to heaven. So you see the interplay in the gospel. He went back to heaven, and he left this new community of the redeemed, us, the church, He left us here on earth, but we are a colony of heaven. We are different. We're not like the world, which is why there's always tension between the church and the world. But he leaves us here as a colony of heaven on earth. Then in chapters 2 and 3, 
Our, there's, a, there's Christ's message, his word from heaven to his church on earth. There's specific churches and specific circumstances, the seven churches of Asia Minor, that receive this message from the Lord. And the call is to persevere, to be faithful, to endure until salvation is finished and earth and heaven are reconciled in this new creation where the faithful will be rewarded. So the message is to be faithful to Jesus on earth until heaven comes down and everything is made as it should be. The church, this church on earth, these seven churches, and by extension, Chatham Bible Church and any other church, we are called to embrace a heavenly identity even as we endure suffering on earth. John is a seer who can relate a heavenly perspective to the church on earth. That's his job. He's taken into these realms. He's given this vision. He, he is shown the way things really are in heaven so he can relate that message to those who are in this world, who are on earth. In chapters 4 and 5, we see this, given this great vision of the heavenly throne room, which is also the heavenly temple. This is how things in the heavenly realm are now. God is enthroned. He sovereignly rules. All creation worships him. You have the 24 elders which is the representation of the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles. All of God's people are worshiping him. The four living creatures, all of creation is worshiping him. The heavenly beings, the angels are worshiping him, and he rules from his throne in his heavenly temple. That's how things are in heaven now, and this is how things should be on earth, which is why you get this vision. This is how it should be here. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And this is how things will be. He will do it. He will bring heaven and earth together, and God will rule unchallenged. But right now, there's the drama of salvation that is developing on earth as heaven breaks in. There's a scroll, as we heard from Revelation 5, which contains God's plan. This is God's strategy of bringing his kingdom on earth from heaven. But who can open it? In other words, Who can accomplish this cosmic reconciliation and restoration of God's rule over all creation, heaven and earth, together? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only the slain lamb and the risen lion, who is both God and man, only he can bring heaven and earth together under God's rule. He's the only one who can be in between. He's the only one who can pull it together and unite it into one. And then chapters 6 through 16, the bulk of the book, present heaven and earth in conflict. There are judgments on the earth as sin and evil are exposed. The lamb is waging war on the dragon. The dragon is the enemy of God, Satan, the one who was actually thrown out of heaven, left heaven so he can set up his throne on earth and is waging war against God and his people. But notice as you read those chapters that this conflict of heaven and earth, of, of God and Satan, of the church and Satan, this conflict is presented from a decidedly heavenly perspective. The view that you get in Revelation isn't from the earth. 
It's from heaven. It's from the throne room of God. So we actually see how things develop the way God sees it, which is why this book is encouraging. And then chapter 17 through 20 describe the victory of the Lamb. Babylon falls, the dragon and the beast are defeated, and in this final battle, all God's enemies are punished and all God's people are vindicated. So we see the end. We see the final victory. The final battle is won. And then chapters 21 and 22 show us the aftermath of the Lamb's victory. This is the resolution. The drama of salvation is at its conclusion. God makes all things new. New heaven and new earth. You see how this theme of heaven and earth in conflict is now resolved in the final chapters. They are no longer in conflict. In fact, heaven comes down and merges with earth, and God's throne is no longer just in heaven, but it actually is on earth in the new heaven and the new earth. And God now rules from here, from among his people. And all the people of God, the bride of the Lamb, will dwell with God in his perfect creation forever. And God's kingdom is finally on earth as it is, as it has been in heaven. That's the book. That's Revelation. Everything else is details you can figure out, lots of questions, lots of images, but this is the book. It's about heaven and earth in conflict and the resolution by the Lamb and the restoration of this harmony at the end of time. Now, let me share with you... Oh, thank, thank you, Diane. <laughs> that was probably six or seven minutes, so I'll do better next time. I'll just take Philemon next time. I can do Philemon in 30 seconds. <laughs> let me share my big observation. If we have the context now, and I, and I hope that as you've been praying through the book, all this makes sense because it's fresh in your mind. Here's my big observation. If Revelation shows us how things are in heaven... That's one of the great benefits of reading Revelation. It pulls the curtain back and tells you this is how things really are in the heavenly realm. And if it tells you how things should be here, so it gives you that vision of how it should be, the ideal, of, and it tells you how it will be eventually when the Lamb gains his victory. Then the question is, where do we see the church in this heavenly vision? Where is the church in this vision of the ideal, of this vision of God's kingdom, when things are the way they are supposed to be, where is the church? And the church, according to the book of Revelation, is before the throne of God and the Lamb. That's where the church is. The 24 elders representing the church are constantly around the throne worshiping. Now look at, at Revelation 7. I'll give you two passages to illustrate this because I see it throughout the book, but I wanted to look at specific passages. In Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, again, look for what's happening in the throne room where the church is. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What's the vision? The vision is God's people gathered around the throne. The multitudes in white robes cleansed by the blood of the Lamb are around the throne praising Him, praying to God and to the Lamb. This heavenly vision encourages the church on earth to be faithful and to persevere by looking at the ideal, by looking at the vision of the church as it should be gathered around the throne, as it will be in eternity, but as it should be now. If we want things on earth to be as they are in heaven, the church must see herself praising God and praying before the throne of the Lord and of the Lamb. Now look at Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. When the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What is happening here? Different imagery a little bit. You have the altar, you have offerings, incense, as in the temple. But it's the prayers of the saints. The church is communicating with God. And what's happening between heaven and earth are the prayers of the saints. And in response to those prayers, there is judgment that comes. And the angels who shuttle back and forth are actually responding to what the church is saying and to what God is doing from heaven. There are a lot of actors in this drama of salvation, but surely one of them is the praying church. The praying church, the church that is engaged in what God is doing. God acts as the saints pray in the book of Revelation. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying from earth to heaven so that heaven would work on earth. Now, I want us to see that. To me, that's very clear in Revelation. As you read it, where is the church? At the throne. What is the church doing? Praying. Yes, we're also suffering. Yes, we're also engaging in the conflict with the dragon. Yes, we're also in the army of the Lamb. Those are all true and good images to keep in mind as well. But the heavenly reality, the heavenly identity that's given to us, something that encourages us to persevere, is the scene of worship, the scene of prayer around the throne of the Lord and of the Lamb. Now, while, while I was on sabbatical, we were able to worship at different churches on Sundays and we heard some good sermons, solid sermons. We enjoyed some good music. But one thing, one thing that was conspicuously lacking was prayer. Let me just say it was unusual for me to hear a pastor pray for his congregation. 
I found it unusual in the churches we visited, and we picked good churches. We didn't go to heretical churches. We picked good churches. In those churches, it was uncommon for a pastor to pray for his congregation. It was uncommon to have a time of preparation before worship or before reading or hearing from God's Word. It was not typical to have a time of, of quiet expectation of what God might do in our midst. Now, I know I can't conclude that a church does not pray enough based on attending just one service. Of course I can't. But when almost every church we visited was seemingly uncomfortable with including more than a few moments of prayer into a service lasting an hour and a half, it seems noteworthy to me. I noticed that. The lack of prayer on Sunday confirms to me what I've already experienced in participating in various prayer gatherings and prayer movements in our region. Much of the evangelical church is not interested in prayer. We have to be honest. We have to, be a, we have to just acknowledge that. If you've tried to organize prayer meetings, if you've been to prayer events, much of the evangelical church is not interested in prayer. The church on earth is not like the church in heaven. If you read Revelation and you see this image of the altar and the throne and the church gathered around it in prayer and worship, that is not typically what we find here on earth. So what is the cause of such pervasive prayerlessness? Well, my guess is that prayer is usually cut out of the service for fear of inconvenience in worshipers. It's the part of the service that it's not, it's not dynamic, it's not engaging enough to keep people connected. It's not exciting enough. And churches, of course, want people to be engaged and to come back the next Sunday. Not bad goals at all. However, the logic of this decision to limit prayer, to cut it out, prioritizes the worshiper over the God who demands worship based on who He is. And so we adjust how we want to worship instead of adjusting to the kind of worship God deserves. You see? The logic is, well, if people are uncomfortable with prayer, let's do less prayer. If people are not as engaged when we pray, let's just not do that. As opposed to asking a very uncomfortable question, why is it that we are uncomfortable with prayer? Of course, if you ask that question honestly, you might answer it by concluding that we are simply bored with prayer. And even worse, maybe we're just bored with God. Prayer matters because God matters. If God doesn't matter, prayer disappears naturally. Why pray to a God you don't care about? Pervasive prayerlessness in the evangelical church shows that we lack the heavenly perspective of the book of Revelation. Our vision of the church at its best, our ideal of church, what we write books about and we say this is how church should be, is not the same as what's presented in the book of Revelation. It's not the image of people around the throne of God, around the altar, praying. 
and worship him and adoring the Lamb. The cause of our prayerlessness, I think, is that we have convinced ourselves that we are in control. In reality, we want our kingdom to come and our will to be done in heaven as it is on earth. We have become self-sufficient and self-directed, self-centered and self-absorbed. We're more like Babylon than Jerusalem. We're more like the dragon than the lamb. We're more earthly than heavenly. We want God to come into our throne room instead of going to his. We want God to worship in our temple. I heard one writer say that the basic problem with humanity is that we think of ourselves as big and God as small. It used to be the other way around, but the advances in technology and the seeming ability to control the world around us have changed the perspective of many people. This writer referenced Job's response to God's speech. You remember, Job is questioning God, and he's wrestling with this question of suffering, and then God shows up. God gives him no answers to his questions. You know that, right? You've read the book. God does not tell him why. God simply shows up and says, this is who I am. And he says, were you there when I did these things? Do you understand how these things work? Can you do things that I can do? And what does Job say? He just basically says, sorry I asked, right? And he just shuts up and sits down. That's a response of a person who seems small to himself before God. And this writer suggested that our answers today to the same questions that God asked Job may be really different. Can you send forth lightnings? Well, kind of, right? <laughs> Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or lose the cords of Orion? Not yet, but we're working on it. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? We can do that. The response of a modern person, a person who is disengaged from God, is we're kind of like God. That doesn't sound as, as drastic anymore. Of course, all that control that we feel is an illusion, and it's regularly shattered by a good hurricane or epidemic, right? And yet in our hearts, we think we're big and God is small. And so we don't feel the need to pray. This prayerlessness has consequences. Because we don't gather around the throne of the Lord, we are more likely to gather around other thrones. We are more likely to burn our incense at other altars. The church is divided and distracted in part because it lacks the heavenly perspective of revelation. We don't think of ourselves the right way. We don't gather around the throne enough, so we kind of wander off to our own respective thrones and altars, and then we wonder why we're divided. Eugene Peterson shares a story about a person in his church named Claire. She was a new Christian, never worshipped in a Christian congregation before, gets converted, starts coming to his church, and is there for about five years and then moves away because of a job 
And as she's about to move away, Peterson interviews her and asks her what was the most difficult thing for her in the worship service as a kind of a new believer, no prior experience. What was the most difficult thing for her in worship? This is what she said. She said, the silence. said, you say, let us pray, and then you don't say anything for maybe 20 or 30 seconds. I've done that. Every pastor does that, right? We kind of exhale, and we let the people exhale, and we let people to start thinking about God. Claire said, you don't say anything for maybe 20 or 30 seconds, but it seems forever. I couldn't handle the silence. I'd get all anxious and fidgety. I almost quit coming. I was so uncomfortable. And then after a couple of months, I calmed down. Then I started liking it. And now when you finally start praying, I say inwardly, oh, not yet, Pastor. I'm not ready yet. She says, I guess I thought that worship was something I had to do. Or it was something you were doing. It was in worship that I became quiet and listening and present before God for the first time in my life. And the silence was my way in. Those 25 seconds of silence were better than any of your 25-minute sermons. This is an example of an earthly person gaining a heavenly perspective in the church at prayer. She comes in as a newly converted person, and she is taught the presence of God. She's experiencing God's intimacy and being able to listen to him, being able just to be with him. That's worship. That's prayer. And we have to ask ourselves, are we the kind of church where this thing can happen? When a new convert comes and they learn to pray and they learn to worship, and there's time, just time to think about God with nothing else. There are opportunities to reorient ourselves towards Him and listen and be present and be quiet. Is my small group the kind of community that gathers around the throne of the Lord and the Lamb? Is that our unifying factor, that when we get together, we pray, we read the Bible, but we do all that because we're around the Lamb? Am I a person who is more comfortable in Babylon than Jerusalem? Am I small or big before God? Is my household, my family, a colony of heaven on earth? When you consider your prayer life, when you think about how you pray, how much you pray, what you do in prayer, you can answer these questions. I think it'll really help you think through these questions. So what can we do about this prayerlessness? Of course, we should pray more, right? Let's do a prayer vigil every week. Let's have many prayer meetings. Let's keep each other accountable. Sure, all good ideas, but those are earthly solutions to heavenly problems. By simply doing more and by simply telling each other, you should pray more, you're not solving the problem. You're not getting a heavenly perspective. 
So the question to me is how, how do you change that perspective? How do you go from a Babylonian perspective to a Jerusalem perspective? How do you go from this earthly perspective where we ask God to do what we want Him to do to the heavenly perspective of gathering around His throne? And I think the solution is the book of Revelation. That's the solution. Because remember, it's written to the seven churches in Asia Minor that have the same problems we do, same issues. When you read the seven letters, you're like, yep, that's us right there. We got that issue too. That one we haven't had for a while, but it'll probably come back again. It's the same story. And so what does God do for these churches? What can God do for us? He gives us a word and he gives us a vision. But both the word and the vision are connected to the lamb. The lamb. When you think about the drama of salvation, who is the main actor in this drama? It's the lamb. Again and again in the book of Revelation, our focus is restored on the lamb. Jesus Christ speaks to the churches. It's his word. He goes to speak to his people. Jesus Christ, the lamb, sits on the throne. The writer is careful to point out it's not just the throne of the Lord, but it's the throne of the Lord and the Lamb. Jesus Christ conquers the dragon and destroys death. Jesus is the Lamb longing for his bride throughout the book. Jesus is the light in the New Jerusalem. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If you want anything good, it has to come through me because I am everything. Jesus brings heaven and earth together finally. He loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. He made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. And he is coming again, and he will make all things new. So to gain a heavenly perspective that will inevitably result in more prayer and better prayer and more connection with God to gain this heavenly perspective, we need to refocus on the one who left heaven for us to restore heaven to us. Do you know what makes me want to pray? Thinking about Jesus. Thinking about Jesus. If I think about him, I cannot not pray. Do you know what makes me feel small when I given to my ambitions, and I think I can do all sorts of things, and I'm really in control of my life. Do you know what cuts me down to size? Is the cross of Jesus. When I think that for God to save me, the Son of God had to die. For God to get me, he had to give up his Son. I mean, how big am I going to feel if that's what I caused? I'm so sinful that it takes God to die for me to be saved. Do you know what breaks me out of my self-centeredness? The blood of the Lamb. Do you know what draws me to the throne? The fact that Jesus is there welcoming me because he's the link between heaven and earth. Anything heavenly including prayer, happens because of him and through him. 